Our scripture reading this morning, as it is through the season of Lent, is the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we're hearing from the 10th chapter, beginning with the 32nd verse. I invite you now to listen for God's word to us. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them all together and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure you saw the images of high school students walking out of school this week in response to the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida last week. It happened here in the Chicago area, Schomburg, Oak Park, St. Charles, Elk Grove, River Forest, Buffalo Grove, and Wheeling, just to name a few places where that took place. 
It also happened in New Jersey, in Montana, Washington, D.C., Virginia, Pennsylvania, Texas, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, and of course Florida, where young men and women still in grief over the loss of their friends and their classmates marched and chanted and questioned legislators through their tears. These young people are walking a hard road. They have a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and the prayers of many friends and family. But they've also had people condemn them. They've had conspiracy theories spread about them. They've been threatened. They are taking their convictions on the road. Sometimes that doesn't go so well. They're putting their convictions out in public, in front of news cameras, in front of their parents, in front of their teachers. And it's amazing to watch their posture of confidence and fear at the same time because it is a hard road that they have chosen to take. It's a road that many others have been unwilling or unable to take. And what I see in that is that your vision for how the world ought to be isn't just tested in the classroom. The real test comes when you take that vision out onto the road. Well, of course, the road is where we find Jesus in our reading from Mark's Gospel today. The road or the way, it's Mark's, it's one of Mark's favorite Gospel expressions. He uses it 14 times. The road, the way, our ears ought to perk up every time we hear it. Jesus is walking a road here in Mark 10. It's a literal road, it's not a metaphor. And for the first time in this Gospel, Mark tells us where that road is going. It's going to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows full well what is awaiting him at the end of that road. Betrayal, condemnation, mockery, beating, death. It's not a road trip. You need to know that if you plan to follow Jesus on this road. And be advised that it isn't for everyone. In the story right before this one, a person went away in grief because Jesus told him he could not bring his many possessions with him on the road. Some will be unable or unwilling to walk this road behind Jesus, this road of discipleship. And some who are willing will not count themselves able. The first time I ever taught confirmation class to ninth graders in Claremont, California, went really well, for the most part. Students got along well, the mentors for the students were really committed and fantastic. We had a great retreat. It went better than I could have hoped. And so we were having one of our last gatherings before the end of the confirmation process, about a week or two before the students are going to make their professions of faith before the church session and be received by the congregation as active members, as many students here at Forth will do in May. And I'm ending the curriculum this week with a discussion of church membership. Specifically, I'm having them read the section of our, of our book of order, you heard that right, that describes church membership. In a section numbered G-1.0304 and titled The Ministry of Members, you read that involvement in Christ's church includes, and I have them read them in turn, proclaiming the good news in word and deed, taking part in the common life and worship of a congregation, lifting one another up in prayer, mutual concern and active support, studying scripture and the issues of Christian faith and life, 
supporting the ministry of the church through the giving of money, time, and talents, demonstrating a new quality of life within and through the church, responding to God's activity in the world through service to others. There's more. Living responsibly in the personal, family, vocational, political, cultural, and social relationships of life, working in the world for peace, justice, freedom, and human fulfillment, caring for God's creation, participating in the governing responsibilities of the church, and to cap it all off, reviewing and evaluating regularly the integrity of one's own membership and considering ways in which one's participation in the worship and service of the church may be increased and made more meaningful. We got to the end of that list and the color just went out of all of their faces. And I asked, which of these things particularly excite you? And there was just silence for several moments until one of them finally spoke up and asked, we have to do all of that? And I tried to answer, well, yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, you're doing some of it already. It's not a checklist. It's a description. Which one of those really excite you? And this student was not deterred. He said, but I have volleyball practice, like, every day. And another one said, and I'm going to be in the IB program at school, and the homework load is twice as much as the regular schoolwork. This went on for several more minutes, each student narrating the many demands on their time, demands that made that description of church mem membership sound really daunting. And by the end of the hour, what I'd hoped would be a, an eager exploration of their new grown-up roles in the church caused a bit of a panic attack. They clearly did not believe that they were able to participate responsibly in the life of the church. Can you relate to that? I certainly can. You take stock of your commitments and your responsibilities and you think, this church thing is for people who have more time than I have right now. You remember some of the mistakes that you've made in your life and you think this church thing is for people who don't have the past that I have. Or you listen to someone pray in public. And you think, this is clearly for people who can pray like that. I can't do that. This is clearly for people who know their Bible better than I do. People who have fewer doubts than I have. People who can say every line of the Apostles' Creed when it is recited in worship. If we're honest, I think all of us doubt at some point our ability to follow Jesus on this road. And we probably have good reason to do that. The world has had 2,000 years to observe the moral failures of people who claim to follow Jesus. We are acutely aware of them. We are at the end of Black History Month, and we have to own the role that Christians and the church has played in establishing and perpetuating the institution of slavery, in Jim Crow laws, and in the racism that continues to stalk our national life as a country. We are repeatedly unable to follow Jesus. The author of Amazing Grace is a good example. Amazing Grace, the most recorded piece of religious music in American history, sung by church members, sung by pop stars, sung by presidents. Everybody knows Amazing Grace. John Newton is the author, and his biography has been uh, written about, there's been a film about it. Basically, uh, he's a profane and godless youth in Britain. He drinks too much. He swears even more than that. He tries to abandon his post in the British Navy at some point. His fellow shipmates on a slave trading ship 
hate him so much they leave him behind in West Africa when they return to England. And when he finally returns, his ship gets caught in a violent storm off the coast of Ireland. He prays to God to have mercy. And the cargo of the ship shifts and covers the hole that all the water's coming in. And the ship makes it safely to land. And John Newton dedicates his life to God right then and there. But he continues in the slave trade. John Newton captained three separate slave trading expeditions after his conversion. And when he had a stroke and retired, he continued to actively invest in the slave trade. He was even ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church. He wrote the words to amazing grace. And yet it wasn't until 16 years after he wrote that hymn that he finally reconsidered his belief about the slave trade. As a disciple, the author of Amazing Grace was not able to follow Jesus in some pretty powerful ways. And we see that. The world sees that. We see people calling themselves Christians and acting in very unchristian ways, both in history and today. We see that and we point it out as hypocrisy, which we should do. And we resolve to not be like that. And some of us just conclude that it's better to say we're not able than to think that we are, to say that we are, and then to be shown to fail. James and John don't have that hang-up. James and John, when Jesus asks them, are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized with this baptism? I mean, cup is an image for suffering. Baptism is a, is a metaphor for drowning. They, they have to know that. And still they answer, we are able. Of course they're wrong. We know they're wrong. They're not able. None of the disciples are able. They flee and abandon Jesus when these predictions about his arrest and his death start to actually happen. When Jesus' compassion and acceptance, his teaching, start to grind the gears of popular religiosity and, and the politics of the empire, Jesus runs out of road and his disciples all scurry for the ditch. They are so not able. And I think some of us are afraid that we're not either. But that's not the end of the story. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was able, in the end, to follow Jesus. He wrote a pamphlet late in his life called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. That pamphlet was printed over and over and over again. That pamphlet was sent to every member of Parliament, including the ones who passed the Slave Trade Act, abolishing slavery in the British Empire. He wrote this in that pamphlet. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I once was blind. Now I see. The inability of disciples is not the end of the story. Not John Newton's, not James and John in this story, not ours. Because the trajectory of the gospel is towards redemption and renewal. That's why I think we are able is ultimately the right and the faithful thing for us to say. Think about it. The first readers of Mark's gospel, they're the church. That they can gather at all to hear Mark's story is all the evidence we need that the disciples were ultimately able to take up Jesus' way. James according to the book of Acts, is martyred by King Herod. 
as a follower of Jesus. The inability of disciples to follow Jesus faithfully is not the end of the story because discipleship doesn't just depend on our ability. We trust also the promise of Jesus, that Jesus is with us, that the Spirit is supporting us. The persistent existence of the church urges men and women like you and me to continue to profess with James and John, in spite of everything we know about the world and everything we know about ourselves, yes, we are able. You know who the most able disciple is in this entire story? It's Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. That's the gospel for you. Bartimaeus is a disciple before Jesus says a single word to him. Bartimaeus is on the road. It's the same word. He's on the road. He's a disciple. Bartimaeus calls to Jesus. He even uses a messianic title, son of David. That makes him the second person in the entire gospel after Peter to address Jesus with a title like that. And when he calls, he doesn't call out for money. He calls out for mercy. He trusts Jesus already. He's a disciple. And Jesus calls him, like calls him, calls him. In the same way that Jesus calls those first disciples in the first chapter of the gospel, he calls Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a disciple. He throws off of his cloak. It's the only thing he has. It's how he collects money. How's he going to find it again? He's blind. Doesn't matter. Peter and Andrew left their nets. James and John left their boats. Bartimaeus leaves his cloak. Bartimaeus is a disciple. And he's asked the same question as James and John. Did you catch that? What do you want me to do for you? It's the same question. Bartimaeus is a disciple. And when he answers Jesus, he answers him, my teacher. That's a really intimate form of address. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. The, the other, only other person to use it is Mary in the garden when she sees the resurrected Lord. Rabboni, my teacher. Bartimaeus uses the same word. Bartimaeus is a disciple. He's healed. He's saved, and he follows Jesus on the way, Mark tells us. As if we haven't got it yet, he makes it very clear, using follows and the way, Bartimaeus is a disciple. But, not just any disciple. Bartimaeus is a model disciple. This is something of a pattern in Mark's gospel, to feature a person who is not part of the inner circle of those following Jesus, not part of those who are supposed to ultimately get it, somebody who is rather considered disabled or marginalized somehow by the society around them, and to lift them up as a model of what following Jesus really looks like. So there, there's a man with a demon, there's a Gentile Syrophoenician woman, there's a synagogue leader, there are children, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. All of these people come to Jesus, often past obstacles and people trying to keep them away and all of them are lifted up in the story as examples to follow of faith and discipleship bartimaeus joins that long line of people who the world calls disabled but whom jesus calls a disciple and he's the most able disciple in the whole story and so we follow bartimaeus and we sing amazing grace how sweet the sound we sing with the confidence of disciples past and present who by God's grace have been enabled to follow Jesus on the way. 
on the way to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is our song. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Ain't that the truth? Thanks be to God and amen.